This is Brian Dascom with the AWC City Voice podcast, where we explore the issues that impact Washington cities. I'm happy to be here today with Carol Wilmus. She's the director of member pooling programs for AWC. And in addition to that significant workload, uh, she also teaches trainings on uh, reasonable suspicion for the Department of Transportation and also on drug and alcohol awareness. Thanks for being here today, Carol. Oh, thanks for having me, Brian. Well, uh, this is certainly a very serious issue whenever we talk about drugs and alcohol and how they've impacted uh, our, our nation and our state. So um, I know with these trainings, you've, you've um, got access to some statistics on, on what's going on nationally and in the state of Washington. So how have drugs and alcohol uh, impacted impacted Washington and our nation? Mm-hmm. Well, we've because of some, um, you know, a unique confluence of, of issues that have been occurring nationally as well as um, our own state law, you know, nationally, we've read in the papers here in the news about um, the opioid epidemic. And, and our state is certainly not immune to that. We, too, have some very startling statistics regarding um, opioid uh, addiction, um, you know, that... Um, and then also with our Washington state law with regard to recreational and medicinal marijuana use. Uh, so we have the, um, the availability of drugs and alcohol in our life that's always, always existed. But today there, there is um, greater accessibility than ever before. Right. That's such a that's such an interesting part that I know we're going to get into uh, specifically later is this introduction of legal marijuana and how that has impacted um, municipalities in Washington. There's a startling statistic um, on that in um, Washington and Colorado are two to three times the rate of test positive for marijuana than the national. So Washington state is at nine percent and Colorado is at 11%. And we are just about a couple of years um, behind Colorado in our own state law for recreational um, marijuana. So we, we are tracking towards um, 11% quickly. I see. Okay, and that, that causes a number of problems, I'm sure, for, um, for municipalities in Washington uh, trying to maintain a, a workforce and, um, and trying to keep people safe. Uh, have, have, do you know, um, anecdotally, have, have you heard anything from cities that, that have been impacted by this? We have, and and it it, it saddens me greatly because um, I think we have an obligation to employees to educate them on their personal choice, their use of uh, drugs and alcohol when it is a personal choice, when it's not an addiction, um, and and it's just it's just casual personal choice. That choice could be. Um, you know, a test positive on Monday morning in compliance with a city's uh, drug and alcohol testing policy or a drug-free workplace uh, policy. Great. Okay. Well, this brings up a number of questions for me, Carol. I mean, for for one thing, I think um, because alcohol has been uh, legal for so long that it's a reality that uh, most employees are used to. So they prob- most employees who uh, who use alcohol probably 
uh, have a pretty good sense of what they can do and still be safe and ready to go in to work uh, the next day. Um, so how is that different with marijuana? Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is one of the, the, the focus areas of our, of our training, because I think this in of itself, um, you know, busts a lot of myths and urban legends that are out there. And, and it comes down to alcohol is water soluble. It, it, uh, you know, an ounce an hour. We, we all pretty much know that that's about, you know, how much alcohol you can drink per hour and stay within the limits of, of, of um, you know driving on our, our roads um, as a general citizen but then also you know in compliance with our un- own drug and alcohol testing policies marijuana is not as easy first of all it's not water soluble so it's retained in the body the organs the fat cells far longer than alcohol and even the most casual of, of use maybe a joint, um, on Friday night, uh, for instance, could remain in the body, depending upon the mod- body type, for um, you know forty-eight hours. Okay, I- interesting. And so, um, just to, to ask out of ignorance, are, are you saying that the effects of of marijuana last for forty-eight hours, so that the person is still going to be high forty-eight hours later, or it's simply that you can detect? the uh, presence of THC through a test in in their system. That individual could be under the influence of the substance um, and be detected for a test positive based on the USDOT guidelines for drug testing, which we use for all individuals that are subject to a drug and alcohol testing policy. It's a good guideline that's been in place since the mid-90s. And, and we still follow that today. Now, the, with that said, there's a lot of science that is, is, um, is, is underway uh, today. But the realities of, of our testing environment and um, policies that are in place in City Hall or a transit agency or a county, um, it is USDOT guidelines. I see. And those, those guidelines um, may be ones that uh, an employee or an employer they may like them or they may not like them, but they're not, it sounds like, they're not uh, at the discretion of the local municipality. Those are being set at a higher level. Correct. Okay. And you, you mentioned this term, uh, drug-free workplace. So um, is that sort of a um, uh, maybe an HR campaign or a slogan that a municipality has, or is that, that a more serious uh, designation? How does that work? Yeah, the Drug-Free Workplace Act has been in a place for uh, a very long time at the federal level. And uh, that, you know, if you are going to be eligible for uh, federal grants, federal funding, a jurisdiction would need to have a drug-free workplace uh, policy in place for all employees. And those are typically a component of an employee handbook or a personnel policy. Uh, Our uh, public sector, those that have uh, individuals that are subject to USDOT, Uh, drug and alcohol testing, those that hold a commercial driver's license or a CDL will have uh, typically stricter and and broader testing that needs to occur for them. Okay, I see. So all... all public employees in Washington are working for drug-free workplaces, and there are even more stringent stipulations for those who are commercial, who have commercial driver's license that they use for their, uh, for their profession. They they should, Brian. So that's I think that's a really good um, point. Is that not all um, government local government have drug-free workplace policies in place? 
And although they are, you know, subject to the Drug Free Workplace Act, they may not have solidified those policies. So it's definitely something that we're trying to get the message out, remind um, local government that this this is important. And, and it's even more important today when we have these national and local issues that are going on regarding opioid addiction and uh, the accessibility to marijuana. Absolutely. And um, it sounds like uh, additionally that there's um, there could be funding ramifications for not having a drug-free workplace policy there could. in place. Is that right? Yeah, there could. Well, um, to shift a little bit here, Carol, um, you know, you, you talk about someone coming in potentially with the effects of THC still in their, their body on a, on a Monday morning. Um, now, uh, I understand for those who are, who have, uh, CDLs, they may be, uh, randomly tested. And so they're, they have a vulnerability there. Um, are those who are, who don't have CDLs, um, are they, are they subject to random testing? If you know, could, could someone who's perhaps an accountant at a city, um, could they be called up for random testing? So generally, no. Uh, the employees that are not in a safety-sensitive function, and that was um, further uh, reinforced by City of Seattle case law that um, those that are not subject to USDOT t- um, testing. Only those that have a safety-sensitive designation in their job description can be randomly tested. So a desk job, as you uh, gave an example of, an accountant is not a safety-sensitive position and could not be tested randomly in public sector. What we can uh, have policy to test them on is reasonable suspicion and post-accident, and specifically post-vehicular accident. Okay, so so the um, situation wherein a, someone who, who works uh, in a non-safety sensitive position uh, has a has a perhaps a vulnerability is if there's a suspicion or if they've had a, a vehicular accident. I think we all understand what a vehicular accident is, but what is reasonable suspicion? What what are the things that would trigger um, their employer having uh, calling for that test? Sure. So there's very um, clear language in the U.S. DOT um, laws that we follow for non-DOT um, policy and and guidelines. It's it's good in in that first of all, for reasonable suspicion testing to occur, a supervisor needs to be trained. And that's all what our training is all about. It's to, to help them identify uh, reasonable suspicion um, behavior and then what to do um, once you've observed that and then follow them through for testing. When a supervisor is observing uh, behavior, it has to be specific, contemporaneous, and articulable. Okay. So what? Are, yeah, those yeah, are please. some big words, they are, they right? Are. Yeah. So um, specific and contemporaneous means that it's happening before the supervisor's eyes. It's not secondhand or hearsay. Um, certainly, if a if a coworker or a fellow employee were to come and report to a supervisor that they've observed someone who they feel was under the influence, or maybe even uh, you know taking drugs or or um, drinking alcohol, they can pay attention to that, but they can't test 
um, because of it. The supervisor has to be observing the behavior um, specifically themselves. And and it needs to be articulable, meaning that the, the supervisor can clearly document what they have seen. And it's not just one thing. It's a, it's a, it's a host of things that are very strict in appearance, behavior, speech, and body odor of the employee. Interesting. Okay, so I, I know that we're uh, we don't have you for a, for a full training here, but I, I'm just curious if you could if you could name uh, one or two of those specific um, sure. specifics. Sure. So you know, say uh, there is an employee who uh, happened to be noticed by a supervisor. Um, their car was in the parking lot. They appeared to have slept there overnight. In their car, maybe they had gone out for a drinking binge and felt that it wasn't safe for them to drive home. And that supervisor witnessed this employee staggering out of their car um, the next morning to report to work. Uh, bloodshot eyes, what smelt like stale alcohol on the breath, probably disheveled, you know, clothing. And and when asked the question, "Hey, how are you this, this morning?" their their speech was slurred. Okay. So clearly, this is someone who is, um, you know, has a reasonable suspicion set of criteria that would prompt that supervisor to, to bring them in for testing. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense right. of the phrase "reasonable suspicion." Yeah. So, um, so what happens next in that in that scenario? What happens to this uh, to this employee who who's been um, who's been identified as being reasonably suspicious? Yeah. So um, the the supervisor will then you know, try to, you know, if someone else is available to corroborate what they're witnessing, um, they, they may try to do that. And if the, if at all possible, but really, you know, the employer is, is legally on the hook at that moment for the actions of this employee. And so you want to be very careful, not only to protect the employee and their, their rights, um, with regard to privacy, confidentiality, kind of respect for them to keep it private, but they we they, we also have an obligation to keep the the city and the public safe. Okay, right. Um, actually, so so where we go from here is that the supervisor would um, probably take this individual into testing after um, going through a reasonable suspicion checklist really quick, just to make sure. Um, that they have done what they said they, you know, that they need to do with regard to policy. You might touch base with your HR um, if you have the time and and then take that individual to the local collection site for testing. I understand. Okay. And uh, what are the ramifications for that individual employee if they test positive or they um, is that up to the, municip- to the particular employer of, of how they respond to that disciplinary actions, or, or how does that work? It, it is up to the employer, um, and and their policy will will clearly dictate. Most of our cities are um, give employees a second chance. Uh, they'll put that individual on a on, on a last chance agreement um, after they've given them the opportunity. Um, you know, let's let's assume we've taken them in for testing. Uh, they've tested positive, came back to the workplace, and we're going to give them um, maybe a second chance if there's not other disciplinary action that's occurred in this employee's time at City Hall, and um, and yeah, they they will um, need to. Uh, perform some random follow-up testing to ensure that they're following through with the advice of their substance abuse professional 
uh, and 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 then away we go. Well, maybe you can do more myth busting here, Carol. I was in a munis- uh, working for a municipality in another state, and uh, one of the things that you would hear sometimes is someone would say, "If you declare yourself to be addicted to uh, alcohol or drugs or something like that, and then you come to work um, under the influence of those drugs, you, you're not fireable." Um, it, it, so that was something again it was another state that i don't expect you to speak to but have you ever heard that uh that claimed here in washington well well certainly someone who is um who is addicted to drugs or alcohol and are are going through treatment you know that's that's their 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 personal you know they need to certainly have you know support, and we have support with good um, healthcare coverage and an employee assistance program, so that an employee has resources to um, address that addiction in in a private way. Um, in the workplace, we have a responsibility to have a substance-free work environment. So the expectations of that individual when they're at City Hall, for instance, is that they be substance-free. And if they are tested in a testing circumstance based on who that employee is, either DOT or non-DOT, um, uh, subject to testing. So let's say, let's go back to that that uh, general employee, um, and, and they happen to have declared an addiction. They, If they are in a post-accident, or observed for reasonable suspicious behavior, they are subject to testing. And if they test positive, based on the disciplinary policy of that city, they could be terminated. Now, Carol, I could very easily imagine someone saying, um, it's none of the business of my employer what I'm doing on my off hours, especially if it's legal. This is something that Washington has declared legal. So um, what what can a uh, what what would you say or what would uh, you recommend an employer say uh, against that kind of argument? Well, what I love about our training, and I I think this is unusual in our training, is that particularly when we're talking with employees, and I, I hope to draw that kind of honesty um, out of the the audience, is that you know you you do have those personal choices in your off hours and and my responsibility or any employer's responsibility in training is that we we address that we we make sure they're aware of their their jurisdictions drug and alcohol testing policies that they're aware educated about how long substance can remain in the body and and then go from there. You know, it's still their personal choice. They're making a personal choice to work for City Hall. And and maybe if their conviction, you know, possibly a user of marijuana three to four times a week, um, that is absolutely going to test positive. And it's someone who's going to have reasonable suspicious behavior. So it's just a matter of time before they're brought in for testing and test positive and their jobs on the line. So I really try to open up that honest conversation. Maybe City Hall is not the right place for them to work. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And as we mentioned before, the um, certainly you as the trainer aren't making these regulations, and the municipalities themselves aren't making the the regulations. It's the drug free workplace um, 
uh, law that's been passed at a federal level. Yes, yes. So um, as, as we talk about this, um, w- one thing I'd like to ask you in, here in closing is what advice would you give for somebody who is perhaps um, themselves dealing with addiction or, or one of their loved ones is dealing with addiction? Um, what kind of uh, resources would you guide them towards? We are so happy to provide the employee assistance program to you know, any jurisdiction. And if, if, if you're not getting it through the AWC Employee Benefit Trust or through the Drug and Alcohol Consortium, really encourage you to seek out the services of an employee assistance program as an employer to offer to, to your employees. It's, it's a confidential uh, resource that uh, is available to employees and their family members. Uh, to help employees uh, get the right treatment or maybe to help somebody else who they know may have um, an abuse uh, or, or misuse problem. Well, thank you. Thank you, Carol. And uh, in the show notes for this episode, we'll put information on those trainings that, um, that are offered as well as the employee assistance program that you mentioned. But I want to thank you again for your time. This has been a fascinating discussion. There's a lot more that I wish we, would, uh, we could have gotten to, but, but uh, this has been very interesting. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Brian. 